Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. So uh, I was at that Better Man thing last night, too, and I got to admit, there was a big surprise at the end, which I was not expecting. Never saw this coming, but one of the guys, um, his last name is Welch, I forget his first name, Brian maybe? Yeah, who uh, is part of, um, kind of like one of the front guys for Corn that band, and he's really had a major change in his life in a lot of ways. But he ended up coming out with this one guy who used to be, um, and still is, in Journey. And so those guys on the stage at the same time was, but Welch was like, I'm really into your stuff. And so they played Don't Stop Believing together at the end. And I was like, I did not see this one coming at all. But it rocked, actually. It was really, it was really good. So, um, and it was interesting, you know, um, I remember the Hobby Lobby thing when it was, there was a lot of controversy there. And it's funny how you hear a little bit more of the story and uh, the, the founder of the company was saying, actually, um, our insurance covers uh, 16 different contraceptions for our, our employees. There were just four that the government required from us that we didn't feel in, you know, in a clear conscience that we could do that. So they provided for you know, their employees, however, it's like, you probably didn't hear that in the media. And so it's just interesting how certain things get left out. But anyway, so this morning we're heading into part nine of our series titled Creed, where we have been talking about um, the most essential and distinctive teachings of the Bible. And so truths and beliefs that set the Jesus followers' faith apart from everything else that was on the market, okay? And so this morning, we're going to talk about this foundational and yet sometimes misunderstood or even ignored theological principle that our faith, our future, our destiny relies on. Like, this is big, and it's called the atonement. And it's an extremely important part of the gospel. In fact, it's like it is the gospel. It's the like central message that the disciples were commissioned by Jesus, like, take this good news to everybody. Like, it is not, it's for everybody. Everybody I want to be included and know about this. And so last week we talked about the incarnation, which was God becoming flesh, and Jesus was this God-man uncreated, like eternal, sent to earth by God, okay? And so um, we're going to start this morning talking a little bit about the world that Jesus grew up in, okay? And so um, Jesus had an earthly mother and father, okay, um, was the oldest of a pretty good-sized family. Um, I know when I first started reading Scripture at one point, I think I thought he was an only child, and then I saw, wait a minute, brothers and sisters are mentioned, and so a decent-sized family, and Scripture says that he grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom, and so 
I know sometimes people like to joke that, well, he was God, and so maybe at first grade, you know, Jesus was correcting his teachers and those kind of things. Um, we don't really see that in, in Scripture. What we do see is that very early on, there were some things that he did that certainly set him apart from others. There was this distinction that I think would have been pretty obvious, and so one of those sections is where um, the word says at age 12, and so in that culture, kind of considered, you know, not an adult by any means, but a child, um, was the, the family sort of lost track of Jesus, and turns out he gets, like, discovered and found in the temple courts, and he's astounding the priests and the religious leaders with his questions, so there's these questions that these are really the, the higher-ups in the religious elite, and they're really, like, probably extremely impressed with this young boy who is way beyond his years. So I think even early on, it's like he's brilliant, he knows Scripture, he's questioning, maybe he's qu even questioning us, but he was on the radar that there was something different about him, okay? Um, scholars debate whether he was aware of, like, I am the Messiah, um, but early on, I mean, there were others that were already kind of on that track. Remember Simeon in the temple when um, Jesus' parents are there, and there's this purification rite, and at eight days, you know, this Simeon holds Jesus and um, and says like this child will call will will cause the rising and falling of Israel you know and there's just this already this expectation there's something different about this child and it was interesting how even early on he was already discussing and living out this mission and so back to that temple thing when he was kind of lost, and they find him there, and he's questioning the, uh, the priests and the religious leaders, and he, he kind of, like, I wouldn't say he snaps back, but he mentions to his parents, like, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business, that this is where I would be? So even at that young age, there's a mission that he is prioritizing and this work that he's already like, this is what I'm about. And he doesn't say I'm about Joseph's business, the carpentry business. He doesn't say that. He's already making this distinction, like, my heavenly Father, this is my priority. And so, um, really interesting that that happens early on. And so, Jesus was exposed to the Scripture, obviously, um, may have seen himself very clearly in the Old Testament. Um, we don't really know that for sure, but certainly could be some indications that he did know that. Um, there were a number of predictions, and prophets that were saying this is the address, this is what we, what we can expect from this anointed one, and so um, probably... Jesus very well aware of those things. So, with his family also, they observed 
Passover. So he's been brought up in a Jewish family that would have this celebration consistently growing up with that tradition. A once a year celebration where the high priest would offer this animal sacrifice for the sins of the of, of himself and the people of God for their sins for the year. And it symbolized a number of things, um, even back in their history, where the Jews put um, this male, the, the blood of a, a male lamb in their door jams, and then the angel of death passed over them, hence we get the word Passover, and allowed them to live, not because they had been perfect, but because they were trusting in something, or we should say someone, that was acceptable to God as their substitution. And so, um, I want to read a little bit from Isaiah 53. And this, really interesting, was written about 800 years before Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's 800 years before Jesus' arrival. There's this celebration with Passover, which was something that had been um, recognized and celebrated for 1,400 years. And so this concept of a sacrifice for sins was part of Jesus' culture. Okay, So then we have this religious day, this Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, okay? And that is considered the most high and holy and somber day of the year. It's commonly referred to as just the day. The day. And that's when the high priest would kill this sacrificial goat, take it into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, and then sprinkle the the Ark of the Covenant with its blood to cover the sins of the people for another year. They also had this scapegoat where they would release a goat into the wilderness who took on the sin of the people and carried their sins away. And these were pictures of really um, kind of their relationship with God. It was part of their culture where sin was real They were guilty before a holy God, and then they relied on God providing forgiveness for them. So that was part of their culture. It's very different. 
than what we are kind of in right now. So with all of these cultural underpinnings and these like religious reminders, it's no wonder that some who knew the scripture well would put two and two together and we're beginning to see how all of this pointed potentially to Jesus. Okay, so fast forward hundreds of years to Jesus' time, and the Romans are practicing crucifixion, okay? So crucifixion, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more, <clears throat> but Jesus would have witnessed crucifixions. So there was this Jewish uprising um, in like 4 A.D., uh, some would say that Jesus was about eight years old, and there were Jewish rebels that were crucified, and he most likely witnessed those. And so interesting that those were Jewish rebels, and he really would be like the king of the Jewish rebels very shortly. And so that's what he grew up with, seeing crucifixion, seeing justice doled out, um, and then the Scripture, he had that, and then these religious traditions that his family observed. So you can see how he grew in wisdom, and he would grow in conviction all through that. And so it's just a different world that we live in now. Um, like this thought of of while we've sinned before a holy God, like now, I, I don't know whether that's, like that's not a cultural thing. Um, most or a lot would say like God can't or should not possibly be angry at us. Or um, that's just outdated thinking. The idea of this, uh, an animal having to be sacrificed, like it's just, I've heard pastors say it's just a barbaric thing. You know, um, and imagine like if our culture recognized something like that yearly. And, and I guess we do a little bit with something like Good Friday, where it's kind of this somber time of remembering the pain and the payment that Jesus made for us. And, um, It's interesting, um, my wife, Allison, um, her family, when Good Friday came along, her mom would ask, so it was Allison and then she has four brothers, and during the afternoon on Good Friday, her mom would say, hey, I just want you guys, we're going to stand here, and they would stand with their arms out like they were on a cross, and just for three minutes. And I just want you to remember what Jesus did for you. And, and she said that that was like this imprint on all of them. And she said the three minutes seemed like three hours. Like it was painful, and none of them have forgotten about it. And, you know, they're in their 40s now, and they talk about that. And so... Um, it was really instructive, but that was really based around, like, there was this payment for 
us. And so this morning, we're going to marry these two concepts together um, <clears throat> that are linked through the cross of Jesus. So the first is atonement, and then the second is crucifixion, and they're linked through the cross. Okay, so let's first look at this concept of atonement that God ordained and set up and started this really early in the history of God's people, beginning all the way back to the beginning. Okay, so John mentioned last week that we had this garden at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> and that's where we responded, they responded to God's direction. And the direction was pretty much, all of this is yours. All of it's yours, just don't, like that one tree, don't mess with that one, okay? <clears throat> Everything else is for you. And like the independent and rebellious children that we are, their response was, no, God, not your will be done, but we will do as we please. And when that happened, according to Scripture, like we died inside, physically, spiritually, death was on its way, and life was altered significantly at that time, which is what people referred to as the fall. Okay, but immediately, immediately on the heels of our rebellion against God, God steps in right away and provides a covering for their shame. And right away, we get this foreshadowing to this mission that God would be on, like to cover our shame. He's already on that, like, path. And so I think Jesus knew very clearly that He is the fulfillment and the culmination of that mission. And as John said last week, there was the first garden and then the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus flips it all back to the way it should be, and he says, in our place, not my will, but your will be done. So we have the first Adam, did it his own way. The second Adam, Jesus, who follows and obeys and flips all of that. And so now death, like, yeah, it's there. Now life is possible for us. So, again, all these theological things that were going on were built into the fabric of the Jews' lives, and it establishes this theological framework that reminds them of their personal relationship to God and their collective reliance upon the grace of God to enter into His presence. And then even further, that there's this anointed one who once for all would bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous himself, for the unrighteous, us, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, 
but made alive in the Spirit. So the day, that day of atonement, atonement, the day would become inextricably linked to the crucifixion. Think about it. The day where a spotless male lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. So here's just a few um, disturbing facts about the crucifixion. The first is that Jesus obviously wasn't the only person crucified and that it was a common practice and a practice that the Romans kind of perfected. The pain of crucifixion was so great that it really kind of gave us um, a new word, unfortunately. Excruciating comes from that, um, which literally means at the cross. That's where we get that word, excruciating. Um, crucified uh, individuals would hang on a cross for like from hours to even days. Uh, generally, it was only men that were crucified. It was very rare that a woman was crucified. If so, they would turn to face her away from the crowd. Um, they were naked, uh, like nailing a, a naked man to the entrance of of a mall or something, I mean, like where a lot of people are, it was meant to expose their shame. And once dead, the victims oftentimes were not buried, but just left for vultures to pick apart. And this is why Josephus, like one of the Jewish historians, called it the most wretched of deaths. So hearing that, like it is shameful, it is awful, it's disgusting, when you think about that, it's astounding, astounding that Jesus spoke about the upcoming, his upcoming crucifixion as his victory. Astounding. As the defeat of all evil. I mean, that is really crazy. That's something that is really just so despicable and shameful and was used to really mock people, that he would look at that knowing that this is why I came and it's going to be victory. And so even that last night the, in the garden, um, it says that he was so like distressed that there was blood coming out of his forehead. And, and so apparently there's um, a, a medical condition called um, hermatidrosis, where that happens, where under extreme stress that blood actually presses through the forehead, so apparently that was happening. He had his arrest, this mockery of a trial. Um, Jesus' body scourged, so in just terrible shape as he's put on the cross, and something that, again, is so... Um, just like, this is the worst. That he says in Matthew 16, take up your own cross and carry it. In other words, it's not like, don't be ashamed of this, but embrace this. Again, a very different message than what we might expect. And so they pluck out... Um, 
Jesus' beard, it says. They're embarrassing him. He's being shamed and humiliated. Uh, most uh, scholars say that they needed like these seven-inch type nails, and that ultimately, in the end, uh, that Jesus died from asphyxiation, and that's simply the inability to expand the lungs. And so when you're on a cross, you have to push up on your feet to expand your lungs. And so I, I read about this in the Journal of American Medicine, where it was talking about um, crucifixion and why um, it's so wretched. So, knowing all that, which is difficult to listen to, let alone even think about, it's crazy that the most wretched death has arguably become the most famous symbol in all of human history. It's amazing that the Christians who could have chosen a lot of other words or symbols or concepts, that they chose the cross to be a picture that they wanted to be remembered by. It's really the picture of our lamb, our sacrifice, which they tied to that sacrificial lamb, and then the scapegoat where our sin was carried away. No wonder John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. Okay, so that's the cross. Now, let's look at atonement a little more in depth. What does atonement mean? Um, kind of an easier way to think about it is this, atonement at one moment, okay, at one moment. And there's a few different perspectives on this, and I apologize if this is a little bit like, gosh, this is so theological, but just something um, to think about, and hopefully you'll see as we kind of put this picture together. <clears throat> There's different perspectives on the atonement. One is that um, this was solely like a demonstration of love. Is that Jesus did not make a sacrificial payment to the Father in order to satisfy like his offended dignity. Um, <clears throat> but rather that we have fear and we're alienated as humans towards God and it's like God saying, hey, it's okay. I love you. So God's essential nature is love, and our problem has to do with our view of God, which prevents us from turning to Him. And so there isn't really anything here that requires a payment for our sins. Like God could have um, maybe communicated that He loved us in a number of different ways, but He just chose his, his death. Okay, so that's one view. Um, and it goes, they, they go on to say a little bit more that um, our main issue was just our fear of God and that we avoid Him when we sin. That Jesus' self-sacrifice then teaches us to be kind to others as He was kind to us. Um, the moral influence theory, um, people that do believe this strongly would say, Jesus, like, really warmed my heart towards God. 
um, but it's not necessarily a payment for sin, okay? Um, I think culturally, this view, and I've heard some, even pastors teach this, I think um, this could be attractive because it kind of releases us from culpability. I mean, the cross, it should warm our hearts, for sure. Um, but the cross, according to Scripture, like the full counsel of Scripture, uh, was necessary. A payment for our sin was necessary. The second perspective on this is the ransom perspective. And Origen, one of the early church fathers, this was something that he really believed strongly, that there's this ransom to be paid to Satan, who's kind of holding humanity captive. And Jesus did say that he came to be a ransom, but there isn't any mention of like paying off Satan in Scripture. That's not there. Um, from this perspective, Jesus like willingly trades his life for us, but since he's this God-man, his deity allows him to raise from the dead, and that Satan simply was just deceived into thinking, like, this is a good deal. I'm going to kill him, not recognizing the divinity of Jesus. Okay, so that's another. And then the last kind of view on this, which most people would hold, is penal substitution. Okay, and that's this substitution or satisfaction theory that this satisfies God's justice, that it served as a payment to God for our wrongdoing against Him. So His just character demands that He punish moral wrongdoing, that He can't just say, all right, I mean, you're underage, go ahead, I'll let you in. You, no, you I won't let in. You, I will. And then it becomes really subjective. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers, said, the heinousness of the crime is determined not only by the nature of the action, but also by the dignity and worth of the person offended. And you guys in the band, you guys can come up now. We're gonna, I'm going to finish here real shortly. So, this view, though, really, I think, nails down clearly why Jesus came. That he could offer his life to God as a genuine sacrifice for our sin. And that his life was of infinite value. Okay? So, those are some of the the theories, here's what we believe and what we think Scripture teaches. And that is all of them are taught in Scripture. Here's the issue. The issue is when one is exclusive, like it's only this and it's not this. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that. It's not either this or this and excluding that, it's both and. All of these things 
are taught and provide a comprehensive picture of the cross with the atonement at one moment. At the cross, here is what happened according to Scripture. It's full counsel. God's love was displayed. God's justice was met. God's desire for us was relationally like that was communicated. His desire for us relationally was communicated. God's holiness and righteousness was upheld in Jesus. Our death penalty that we have earned from our sin was paid in full. Our relationship with Him was restored. God's wrath and anger towards sin was poured out on His Son. God the Father separated himself from sin. It says that his son became sin for us. The blood of the lamb covered our sins. Our wrongdoings, our sin was carried away. Access to God was granted. And it was all accomplished at once, all at one moment. And that's why when all of this was accomplished, Jesus announced, it is finished. The very beginning of him saying, I am about my father's business. This is what I'm going to do. This is why I'm here. At that point, he said, I have just done it. I love the verse in Romans 5. It says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Psalm 103, he will remove our transgressions from as far as the east is from the west. It is going to be carried away, our sins. I love the verse in Hebrews that says, our sins, referring to them, he will remember them no more. You mean like I'm going to bring it up and say I'm sorry for that? And he'll say, I don't even remember what you're talking about. As an incredible God that accomplished all of those things at one moment for us. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you're a God that loves, that like at the cross, that justice, holiness, righteousness, forgiveness, love, oh, all of this was communicated and demonstrated so clearly. No wonder the cross has become this symbol that is our victory that many thought would be the end, and it wasn't. In fact, it was when everything got turned back to the way it should be. And you've offered this free gift of eternal life and forgiveness to us. And so, God, we want to tell you we are 
thankful that you would offer that grace to us and you would do it once for all that we don't have to sacrifice and go through these things that you did it for us. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father. And so, God, we want to tell others about this amazing gift. Thank you that you, man, did that for us. That you love us that much and you want to be in relationship with us. It's an incredible thing. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.